The term trap game in the NHL should be reserved for when playing teams below a 400 win percentage. This season, that means Central Division teams Arizona and Chicago to the teams above in the division and around the NHL better are considered trap team games. In the Pacific Division, games against Seattle and Vancouver qualify right now as well. A pair of Atlantic Division teams, Ottawa and Montreal, are trap game opposition now too. Having your team lose is one thing to say in the case of a one-goal loss Minnesota had to Florida Friday night because point-wise Florida is first in the NHL. It's altogether different losing to a basement dwelling outfit by comparison because as the season moves along you will hear about expected wins remaining that are solely based on the win-loss records of each team compared to each other. It's a trap game because your team is expected to win and it's more frustrating to lose those games because of that but especially to basement dwelling draft lottery teams. Now Minnesota and St. Louis playing Dallas didn't have any trap games over the weekend. The Central Division teams that did, well, it didn't go good with the exception of Colorado, although we might add Arizona winning unexpectedly as a trap game team to the positive ledger. That, from a Central Division perspective, was limited, that positivity defined. I also am not sure when, as Chicago played Sunday in Vancouver, is it a trap game with both teams below the 400 win percentage at the same time i'm just kidding around it's a good opportunity to get some points by either team versus another team that overall comparatively had early season struggles neither team is in a trap game in fairness for winnipeg and nashville their trap game losses hurt more but if you want to take away from a lot of losses the colorado win having the fewest games played now continuing to win can vault them into first place when they would reach the 17 game played mark however the teams will all continue playing so each win or loss subsequently changes what colorado needs to do to make up games to actually be in that top spot colorado at a 0.607 win percentage ranks third best in the central division while fifth point wise still they have their work cut out for them but they are making progress with their current win streak Otherwise, positionally, division point rankings in the standings has more or less been relatively near static. Arizona's recent success, or Chicago's prior, made them point-wise more respectable, but still in the same rank spot and win percentage-wise in the division standings. If you want insight, Minnesota, Winnipeg, St. Louis, and Colorado are the four teams that are competing for the three divisional top playoff spots. Nashville and Dallas already are over that ideal loss total with seven for the 20 game played mark, but over 500 or at it in point percentage. Chicago and Arizona remain, as I described, trap game teams, and while more respectable of late, both teams are already into double digits in the loss column, and we haven't even reached the 20-game played mark. Basically, Colorado flipping ahead of Nashville or St. Louis in the standings looks to be on the horizon, provided Colorado keeps winning and Nashville or St. Louis don't start adding more points by winning and point percentage bringing their take up as well. The standings point and point percentage-wise aren't aligned right now because of Colorado's games in hand. Remember, games in hand are only useful when winning those games. The Central Division had one head-to-head game as we look at Friday through Sunday's games involving Central Division teams. That's where we begin. Saturday, Dallas 4, St. Louis 1 in Dallas. St. Louis's 
Vladimir Tarasenko wraparound stop five hole by Dallas goalie Jake Ottinger. Dallas is Jason Robertson off the rush, blocker save and alone, and a broken play slot power play save by St. Louis goalie Jordan Bennington. Dallas's Tyler Sagan wires it from the slot. St. Louis goalie Bennington makes that save on the power play. Dallas's Joe Pavelski forces St. Louis goalie Bennington to make a shoulder save off of a St. Louis defensive zone turnover in a scoreless first. In the second, Dallas's Alexander Radulov's backhander on a breakaway is stopped, but he draws a shorthanded penalty shot a minute 47 seconds in. St. Louis goalie Bennington makes a pad stop on the penalty shot, and Dallas's power play continues. It's on the next Dallas power play, their third. Dallas opened the scoring with a power play goal as Ryan Suter's point wrister beat St. Louis goalie Bennington glove shelf. It was looked into whether Dallas's Jamie Benn had it go off his glove, but every game summary I've cross-referenced post-game has Suter as the goal scorer, and when I watched it, it looked as though Ben's glove never touched it on route. Dallas's Michael Raffles stopped on a shorthanded breakaway. On the next Dallas shorthanded situation, Dallas's Raffle gets a two-on-one with Rope Hints and passes to Hints, who slides it in short side for a Dallas shorthanded goal. The next Dallas penalty, a St. Louis power play goal on the top of the circle, David Perron shot. That Brandon Sod corrals the rebound to get the goal past Dallas goalie Ottinger. 2-1 Dallas through 2. In the third, Dallas's Ben gets an offensive zone high stick penalty upon getting out of the box for a prior penalty and thus is put back in the box. Dallas's Raffle and Hints on another shorthanded 2-on-1 recreate their magic as Hints gets the Dallas shorthanded goal short side lifted on, at the time, the NHL's second best ranked power play, St. Louis. Dallas goalie Ottinger makes a point shot save and rebound save on St. Louis's Robert Thomas and a net side save later on James Neal. Dallas's Essel Lindell hits the post on a St. Louis empty net from his defensive zone and Dallas's Jamie Benn gets the empty net goal on a backhander at the St. Louis blue line to make it a 4-1 win for Dallas. Dallas having yet to win a Central Division head-to-head game coming into this one and coming off an awful road loss to division rival Minnesota showed up collectively in a game once again as a team below 500 to a St. Louis team that had just ended a three-game losing streak with a solid 4-1 home outing versus San Jose. St. Louis having banked points early on actually for 4-2 over the last 10 but won 3-1 over the last five didn't feel like they needed this game as badly as Dallas did. Well, with the win, it's Dallas now 4-4-2 in their last 10 heading into Monday's action, while St. Louis is a division worse 3-5-2 now. So don't buy into the perception this wasn't as equally an important game to St. Louis. Often last year, it was special teams that would be the difference maker in helping St. Louis win games. The St. Louis power play is one of the best in the NHL again this year. It was the difference in this game, not for pushing St. Louis to win, but by Dallas's two shorthanded goals by hints. In fact, it propelled Dallas to a needed win instead, while both teams, and Dallas has a good power play this year as well, ranked top 10 in the NHL comparatively, but not as high as St. Louis, they went 1-4 for four and 0-4 on a penalty shot, while St. Louis was 1-6 for six with the two shorthanded goals given up, being the determiner in who won the game. The NHL would consider Dallas's empty net goal an even strength tally, and that was the only one in the game. Dallas goalie Ottinger was solid 
only the net front effort by St. Louis' Assad beating him while making 35 saves, while St. Louis goalie Bennington, three goals against, had 29 saves, seems to have had additionally had to make more big saves, even though he ended up losing. Again, hardly to be at fault for the odd man shorthanded Dallas rush goals, St. Louis's risk profile with Bennington in net seems to be higher because they know that he can bail them out by making stops. St. Louis remains in third place in the Central Division, but had they won Saturday, it would have created a three-way point tie for first with Minnesota and Winnipeg, all at the same 17-game played mark. That was the missed opportunity for St. Louis here. The other is that they breathe life into a Dallas team who has a tough stretch of mostly divisional opponents coming up and the need to win games. St. Louis just gave them one of them. Welcome to Central Division Hockey, the podcast. I'm Tim Burrell. This Monday edition covers Friday through Sunday Central Division games. The division's lone head-to-head is where I wanted to begin from. The eight Central Division teams played a total of 10 games with three teams playing back-to-backs, making for five games over four teams a good way to split it. But it certainly results-wise of late isn't allowing for a breakdown that reflects a top-to-bottom standings look at the teams. And the lone head-to-head didn't include NHL's last place Arizona, But over the last 10 currently heading into Monday night, St. Louis and Dallas have Arizona sandwiched between them for the worst record over that stretch of games. So after the head-to-head, I wanted two of the Central Division teams that played two games over the weekend to fill out the first half. Then, Minnesota, Chicago, and Arizona certainly made that by the win-loss records over the weekend, where the lower division teams in the standings actually picked up more points than Minnesota, the first-place division team, did. A little more interesting. Also, I do talk about the trap games, but Dallas and St. Louis wasn't one, nor were Minnesota's games, so the connection with that really picks up on the podcast's back half, because that's how I've ended up ordering the podcast. We finish off Dallas and St. Louis looking at the expanded standings and go from there. Dallas, 16 games played, 7-7-2, seven, seven, 16 points, 6 in the central, streak 1 win, goal differential minus 8. I said the stretch of 5 with 4 against central division rivals was going to be impactful to Dallas, 1-1-0 through the first two games played. It occurs to me that with this Dallas team, seeing them go 500 like 2-2 and 1 would almost be an expected outcome in their results. I'm not sure where over the next stretch there is an identifiable win streak set of games for a Dallas team that needs to string more than two in a row together. Some nights, the team I think people expected to be shows up. Others, it doesn't and you really can't predict what version of the Dallas Stars you get and the 500 record shows it. What happens to goalie Ottinger, who has been excellent in two starts since Holtby was injured, 
is a good question. The expectation is Holtby will be soon ready to return, and Dallas probably won't carry three goalies, and I don't think Hudobin's played so poorly Dallas would send him down as opposed to Ottinger. Just wondering how they keep Ottinger up. He is waiver-exempt, and he Yes, in a small sample size this year, but with a real NHL body of work from a year ago, is the guy I would want in net for Dallas to give them the best chance to win. There just feels like a three-way goalie carousel that is more complicated now by Ottinger's play. I expected a way better than 500 Dallas team, but I'm settling in to the status quo and that reality for this year as we approach the 20-game played mark. St. Louis, 17 games, 9-6-2, and two, 20 points, third in the central. Streak loss, one. Goal differential, plus nine. St. Louis took care of the losing streak they were on and then uncharacteristically had a special teams letdown after a solid game versus San Jose. The lack of attention to details of a year ago remain, and I recall in the St. Louis defensive zone versus Dallas where Brandon Sod heads to leave the defensive zone while being the closest to the loose puck of St. Louis players to then have a Dallas player keep it in the zone because the St. Louis defenseman further away doesn't gain possession sod of course wasn't with st louis a year ago but it's almost as if he had been don't get me wrong sod's putting up points and was the lone st louis goal scorer but that's a moment where st louis how can i say almost over trust defensive responsibility to the defensemen to go on offense and get caught outmatched in their own zone when the defense don't win the battle as the closest to the loose puck along the board sod should just go get it and rim it out or find an outlet there wasn't support to spring the defensive zone if he doesn't get that puck it's dallas who will as they did keeping offensive zone time gm doug armstrong's cap flexibility is really dependent on whether the team continues to keep vladimir tarasenko or moves him as he requested in the summer and over this last stretch it seems tarasenko's value has been raised since the season start and that move would help set the new core St. Louis group going forward as well if they do it except everything's quiet on that front seems the longer it goes the less helpful even with Tarasenko playing good it is for the group because he's really not going to be there going forward one more thought on St. Louis here's a never uttered let alone unpopular opinion for you is it only me or how Perron's company excluded does St. Louis look like it misses second center Braden Shen more than it did captain Ryan O'Reilly out of the lineup Minnesota 5-4 loss in Florida Saturday in the first. Florida's Jonathan Huberto stopped net front by Minnesota goalie Cam Talbot on a glove save and a glove save on Ryan Lomberg off the rush. Minnesota's Nico Sturm's wraparound goes through the paint. Florida goal off the rush. Backhander in a lone blocker side Owen Tippett as both Minnesota defensemen take Aaron Etblatt who is available to make an area slot pass. 1-0 Florida after 1. 2-on-1 Minnesota goalie Talbot poke checks Anthony DeClaire of Florida. Florida's Ekblad rings the post. Minnesota Sturm in the slot stopped by Florida goalie Sergei Bobrovsky's pad save. Florida goal, two-on-one keep, short side roof. Minnesota power play goal, net front tip by Joel erickson at the top of the paint. Florida goal with the puck in the paint behind Minnesota goalie Talbot for a rebound tap-in. Minnesota's Kevin Fiala's breakaway, rebound, and wraparound stop by Florida goalie Bobrovsky, 3-1, Florida through two. Less than two minutes into the third, Minnesota goal, Kirill Kaprizov, 
breakaway roof glove. Florida goal, roof glove driving the net after a self-pass chip off the sideboards at the offensive zone blue line. Florida shorthanded goal, Hubert or breakaway near the midpoint of the third. That goal comes back on an offside review, so no goal. Minnesota 6-on-5 goal, Marcus Foligno net front rebound off the cycle. Florida empty net goal from just outside the Minnesota blue line. Minnesota goal, 6-on-5, Ryan Hartman net front screen and deflection of an Erickson Eck point shot, but Minnesota run out of time falling five to four in florida to me this was the best game of the weekend involving a central division team a back and forth game that had everything you want in quality hockey it also included both teams starting goalies it said that it can come down to three plays on a team winning or losing in hockey and i do of course mean when both teams are playing to the best abilities as to how the game is determined to me in this game within the game it was two to one florida and that's why Florida won by a goal. Here's what those difference makers are in order. Minnesota goalie Talbot was great at his first shot on goal and rebound control, except that he nor Minnesota defenders moved it out of harm's way on initial saves a few times. One of those, Florida's flank Vitrano, second in the second, the puck fell behind Minnesota goalie Talbot. He didn't know where it was, and it was then put in the net. A few other rebounds laying in front of Talbot, I noticed after that, while he's standing up after saves, didn't cost Minnesota goals against, but that rebound that did end up as a goal was a mistake when it did. Florida goalie Brabowski's trio of late second period saves on Minnesota's Fiala late in the second. That was robbery, and that Fiala didn't score on one of those, and if not for Brabowski, he does. That would have made it a one-goal game going into the third and probably forced this game to extra time. You take both the plays I've just talked about, and if they go Minnesota's way, Minnesota could win in regulation. The third play is the offside Florida shorthanded goal, and that did go Minnesota's way. And why I said Florida had a 2-1 to one of the three determining plays to win this game by a goal. Florida played without the best forward on their team, Captain Alexander Barkov, although I maintain defenseman Aaron Ekblad is the team's best player. Watch Florida's first goal again on how even two Minnesota defensemen are all over Ekblad and he still makes the area pass play that leads to Florida's first goal. No one's fault and if the puck doesn't get over and only a really great player is able to do that and Ekblad was able to. Minnesota defenseman captain Jared Spurgeon left after three minutes 18 seconds time on ice in the first and did not return. Now outlisted with a lower body injury that had Minnesota finish the game with five defensemen. Back-to-back games, Minnesota 5-4 shootout loss in Tampa Bay Sunday. A Tampa Bay power play goal a minute six seconds in on a deflection that goes roof glove corner on Minnesota goalie Capo Kakinen. Minnesota's Fiala stopped in the paint. Tampa Bay goal as Patrick Maroon goes around the net. Comes out to backhand a puck far side roof. Minnesota power play goal Felino screen and tip on a Matt Dumba top of circle shot. Minnesota goalie Kakinen makes a save in tight on Tampa Bay's Ross Colton. Tampa Bay's Victor Hedman's point shot goes off the post on a power play. Minnesota's Hartman fights Tampa Bay's Zach Bogosian and Hartman keeps the bigger Bogo from getting close or landing as both wrestle to the ice. Good showing by the smaller Hartman. 2-1 Tampa Bay after one. Under four minutes into the second Minnesota goal, Brandon Duhame on a high slot one-timer put glove upon offensive zone entry on Tampa Bay goalie Brian Elliott. Tampa Bay goal off the cycle 
as stretched across the crease, forehand, backhand, tuck past Minnesota goalie Kakinen in the paint. 3-2 Tampa Bay through two. In the third, Minnesota three-on-one, Jordan Greenway's backhander goes off the short side post and gets cleared away. Tampa Bay goal on a swept-in point shot from the slot five hole. Under three minutes to go, Minnesota goal six-on-five. Fiala point shot goes blocker side lifted off Tampa Bay players in front on route. With 39 seconds left, Minnesota goal six-on-five again. Eric Sinek, net front, second effort, lifted rebound, forcing extra time. OT had two penalties in it as Minnesota got power play time up until Minnesota's too-many-men penalty with only eight seconds left in overtime. Therefore, Tampa Bay really didn't have power play time, even though there were two penalties. Really important extra point decided by the shootout. Steven Stamkos, Tampa Bay's first shooter, nets the only goal in the skills portion for valuable points. Another back and forth game, more penalties as both teams go one for four on the power play. A clutch effort by Minnesota down two goals in the third to force overtime. And I have been clear, I don't like the breakaway skills competition deciding points and probably why I felt the Minnesota game versus Florida, even though a regulation lost by them, was the better game. Minnesota defense majority Ben, and with Minnesota playing Tampa Bay, who does have size, slotted in, of course, because Spurgeon was injured. Still, it's a heavy game Tampa Bay play, so Ben fit in well. Would he play over, say, John Merrill if all the Minnesota defensemen were healthy in a game versus Tampa Bay? That's a good question. Also, the back-to-backs also makes me think to watch out for that kind of insertion as the season goes on. Tampa Bay didn't have Braden Point or Nikita Kucherov, and they still have firepower to put up four goals. Minnesota, 18 points, 11-6-1, 23 points, first in the central streak, overtime loss, one game, goal differential, plus five. The shootout loss point does put Minnesota a point up on Winnipeg, having played an extra game. And this back-to-back against the Panthers and then the Lightning is probably the hardest one on the schedule for any NHL team. These games in Florida. Minnesota, despite only getting a point very well, could have won both these games. I also don't want to say, yeah, Minnesota hung with these teams. Of course they did, just like Minnesota did last year with Vegas and Colorado a year ago. Minnesota is a good playoff caliber NHL team, and it's why they are currently first in the Central Division. If you want to listen to people talk about as if this was the Jacques Lemaire coach wild on the watchability meter, Minnesota is not that team. But if you want to believe that false narrative still, that's on you. The same people that will say that aren't going to like that Minnesota very well could stay atop the Central Division going forward this year. They're going to be tough to knock out of that spot to be sure. Minnesota comebacks, I guess, are only as Minnesota color analyst Gigi Marvin says, so fun when you're rooting for Minnesota. Yet one, a drinking game when Marvin says fun during the broadcast is a way to make the games more fun. And she's right. A four-line team that plays with speed, can be physical, and has D that activate offensively with good goaltending, that has balanced scoring, and high-end game breakers, Caprizov and Fiala, should be every year Selkie finalist Eric Sinek and playmaker Zuccarello, tougher than nails Felino, and a really underappreciated top four Spurgeon, Brodin, Dumba, and Goligoski. Yep, you probably hate Minnesota if you're rooting for the other team, but you don't get to discount Minnesota as a team because you simply don't like them. And 
they are definitely watchable because there's a lot of reasons to like what GM Bill Guerin and Coach Dean Evason have done with this team. If that 5-4 loss to Florida wasn't fun to watch hockey, then I'm not sure what those people want, and nor am I worried about what they do want. This Arizona portion of the podcast is unofficially brought to you by the Shane Wright Draft Lottery Sweepstakes, the only Central Division team to win both back-to-back games of the three who played them over the weekend was Arizona. That's how, after mostly being near or the top of the podcast because of playing other Central Division teams, they end up again in the top half of this podcast, even when I expected to tag them on at the end with a pair of losses against non-divisional rivals that, well, as 3-0-1 in their last four and collecting points in four straight didn't happen for Arizona. At home, Arizona 2-1 overtime win over Detroit Saturday. Detroit goal just under nine minutes in. Dylan Larkin, forehand, blocker side low, beats Arizona goalie Scott Wedgwood on a breakaway as three Arizona players get all crossed up in the neutral zone. Larkin has another off-the-rush backhander stopped in close. one nothing Detroit after one. In the second, Arizona goalie Wedgwood, high slot power play stop on Detroit's Larkin. Detroit's Adam Ernie spins and fires in the slot. Detroit's Robbie Fabry forces Arizona goalie Wedgwood blocker save and sets up and fires a one-timer blast that Wedgwood takes high under the mask but above his equipment. After a stoppage, Wedgwood shakes it off and continues playing. That's tough. Detroit's Vladislav Nemestikov in the slot puts it off the far side post in a scoreless second. In the third, Detroit's Philip Zadina stopped up front off of a scramble. Arizona's Clayton Keller's one-timer low circle stopped by Detroit goalie Alex Delkovich. Arizona goalie Wedgwood blocker save on Detroit's Fabry off the rush. Arizona goal off a face-off win in the back half of the third. A Camdenine point shot. Ryan Dezingle swings it short side roof. Almost a batter in baseball-like motion to send the game to overtime. 25 seconds into overtime, Arizona Keller as a short side shot is bobbled and Jacob Chikrin gets it net side. Keller goes around the back of the net and Chick gets it to that open side of the paint where Keller collects it, pulls it away from the net to then bury it into the open net for the overtime game winning goal for a 2-1 Arizona overtime win. Arizona 2-1 overtime win in L.A. Sunday, so they had to travel as well. L.A.'s Victor Arvidsson's poke checked by Arizona goalie Karel Vamelka during 4-on-4 play in the first. Arizona goalie Vamelka makes a pad save on L.A.'s speedy Andreas Athanasiu's breakaway in a scoreless first. Arizona forward Jay Bagel left the first with an injury after 3 minutes 21 seconds time on ice and did not return. L.A.'s Mickey Anderson hits a post on a point shot in the second. L.A.'s Adrian Kempe stopped top of the crease off the rush. L.A. goal on an Arizona defensive zone turnover put short side roof from the low circle. L.A.'s Arthur Kelly have stopped short side on a power play. L.A. goal scorer Brendan Lemieux falling hits the short side post. L.A.'s Anze Kopitar stopped on a wraparound and Kelly have forces Arizona goalie Vimelka to make a glove save. 1-0 L.A. through 2. Just under 5 minutes into the third, Arizona Shane Gossespierre puts the puck to the net where Travis Boyd scores on a net front tip to tie the game. Arizona's Louis Erickson stopped by L.A. goalie Jonathan Quick point blank net front forcing extra time. In overtime, L.A.'s Alex Iafello stopped off the rush. Arizona's Gossespierre stopped on a breakaway. Arizona's Kyle Capiobianco from the dot puts it far side post and in for the overtime game winning goal in back-to-back games. Play actually continued till the horn indicating the goal went 
in, and that's how quickly in and out of the net Capo Bianco's shot was. Decided to do one analysis for the two games because, well, they are rather identical. Arizona, give up the first goal, but have your goalie make all the other stops, Wedgwood Saturday and Vimalka Sunday, to keep it a one-goal game. Tie it up in the third on one of your limited scoring chances, the Zingle Saturday, Boyd Sunday, and get the OT winner while being outshot but defensively as limiting as possible while your goalies keep your team above water through the game. Now, that the goalies required to do this currently are waiver wire early season journeyman goalie in Scott Wedgwood and never played in North America till this year under the radar to make the team Corel Vimelka and, well, good on Arizona. Arizona fans, when these two goalies do get lit up, focus on anyone else on the high danger chances Arizona gives up and give these goalies a break. And remember, in the offseason, Arizona traded away two proven NHL goalies and their best third goalie with NHL experience prospect. We're talking about Kemper, Ranta, and Hill. It takes OT and only allowing one goal against for Arizona to win on back-to-back nights. And that's because of goaltending, yes. And to have to have that type of goaltending... It's great to see when these guys with the worst current job role in the NHL are able to pull it off, but don't expect a team that hasn't spent even a million on a goalie, let alone the seven million most teams do on a pair of goalies as a tantum minimally to be winning much. Arizona 19 games played 4-13-2, 10 points, 8th in the central streak, 1-2, goal differential, minus 35. Only the defensively structured New York Islanders have scored less goals for than Arizona, and they have played four fewer games, so my guess is at the same game played total, the Islanders probably will, and Arizona will be dead last in the NHL in goals four. And yes, defensively, Arizona has been limiting chances. They still give up a lot, and that only great goaltending of late has saved them, but they simply don't score enough. Ottawa is now last in points by one in the National Hockey League. They have played four fewer games till they play Colorado tonight after an NHL-mandated week of postponed games, which we talk about in the podcast elsewhere. The four-game point streak is amazing for Arizona, and it absolutely has no foundation to become a thing or have continued sustainability as a team system for all the unexplained reasons it's happened over this brief stretch to begin with. We'll take a time out on Central Division Hockey, the podcast. When we return, we look back at our weekend's fill of trap games. Welcome back. We look at Colorado first in their trap game win. Chicago going 1-1-0 as they remain a trap team and wrap up with Winnipeg and Nashville's trap game road losses over the weekend. Colorado 7-3 route in Seattle Friday. Just over four minutes in, Colorado power play goal Andre Burakoski on a broken play failed clear. He beat Seattle goalie Chris Dreger five hole from the slot. Colorado shorthanded goal Valerie Nishnushkin posting in glove side on a breakaway. Seattle's Jaden Swartz hits the post glove side on a breakaway. 2-0 Colorado after one. Three minutes into the second, Colorado goal. Kale McCarr on a point wrister put roof through traffic. Colorado power play goal. Burakoski second on a top of circle wrister put glove side. That ends Seattle goalie Dreger's night. Four goals against nine saves. Former Colorado goalie Philip Grubauer comes in relief. Just over seven minutes later, Colorado. 
Bank of Clark County is making it easy to give to local charities. We're featuring a different one at each of our Bank of Clark County locations. To find out how you can support their good work, visit our website at www.bankofclark.bank or follow us on our social media channels and the hashtag GiveWithBOCC. Bank of Clark County. Member FDIC. Meet the One for All card. Perfect for Aunt Edith, your dog walker, and even what's-his-name. With over 100 great brands and no fees, it's the one gift for all. Available in stores and at giftcards.com. Brought a goal, McCarr's second, a two-on-one keep. McCarr shoots far side blocker, then puts the rebound short side lifted glove side. Just under three minutes to go in the middle frame. Colorado goal, Eric Johnson from the dot over the pad under the blocker far side. Set up by a nice in-the-slot backhand spin pass from Miko Rantanen. 6 nothing Colorado through two. In the third, Seattle's Jordan Eberle off the rush stopped by Colorado goalie Darcy Kemper. Colorado's Alex Newhook is stopped on a wraparound by Seattle goalie Grubauer. Under five minutes into the third, Colorado's Nick Obey-Kubel with his first goal of the year. And first with Colorado on a backhander in the crease rebound. Seattle's Eberle gets a power play goal from the low circle. Colorado's Logan O'Connor gets a neon knee hit with Seattle's Yanni Gord to take a two-minute penalty. No one was hurt. Seattle power play goal, Brandon Tenev skate to stick rebound short side off of a Carson Susie point shot. I hope you can all appreciate the former Central Division players I'm making note of now on Seattle that are on the score sheet. The Seattle team is full of them. Colorado goalie Kemper makes Two slot saves on Seattle's Jonas Donskoy and Kelly Yarncroke. Seattle get one more goal with just under five minutes left. Jammed in short side as Colorado win 7-3. Seattle head coach Dave Haxtell's goalie choice of the two-game started Chris Dreger over former Colorado goalie Grubauer. I don't know about. Seattle's starting goalie of 13 games this regular season of course is Grubauer the one thing I was really looking forward to this matchup was whether Grubauer could stand on his head and get Seattle losers of five straight a needed win at home or would Colorado light him up and hand the Seattle team another loss Colorado lit up rarely played Seattle goalie Dreger but at four nothing when Grubauer did come in the game was over Seattle has scored five goals twice once versus Montreal and Buffalo this year as a team, so it was over even with more than half the game still to play. Secondly, I know Colorado star players get deserved attention, but this current run includes two players that should get more recognition. Defenseman Devin Taves return, and in quick order, defenseman Kale McCarr looks like the player of a year ago and not struggling. Colorado fans appreciate the quiet play of Taves as the reason behind McCarr now breaking out again because that's the actual correlation. Valerie Nishnushkin is the other player that returned to the lineup when Colorado's streak started going as well. A player that average time on ice is 17 minutes, but he's defensively sound, plays physical, kills penalties, and he makes the second line and the depth of Colorado better. And at four points in five games played, he is nearly at a point per game this year. Nishnushkin is way undervalued for how important a two-way contribution he provides. Colorado, 14 games played, 8-5-1, 17 points, fifth in the central, streak, four wins, goal differential, plus 10 which is the best in the Central Division. 
Coach Jarrett Bednar signed a two-year extension with the team. They announced Friday the NHL's current fifth-longest tenured coach has been Colorado's head coach since the 2016-17 season. Bednar was in the final year of his current deal. It's really hard to analyze where Colorado is really at because this win streak has been against teams Colorado should beat, although Colorado have been dominant while playing these games. The next game is also another trap game versus Ottawa, who have been on a COVID-mandated break by the NHL. When Colorado plays the last three games of this month against Anaheim, Dallas, and Nashville, at least playoff bubble teams, if they stay as dominant as they have been, I might be inclined to draw out more flattery. Chicago 5-2 loss in Edmonton Saturday. Edmonton goalie Stuart Skinner glove save on Chicago's Patrick Kane. Midpoint of the first Edmonton goal, Connor McDavid rebound roof off a point shot on Chicago goalie Kevin Lankinen. Minute three seconds later, five on three Edmonton power play. Tyson Berry blasts in the high slot as Chicago goalie Lankinen overcommits to the short side of Leon Dreisaitl. Three on two, Chicago Dylan Strom is stopped short side by Edmonton goalie Skinner. Edmonton get a shorthanded goal, glove, corner shelf after picking off a defensive zone drop pass by Chicago's Seth Jones. Edmonton goal off the forecheck to the slot, backhanded and up on a deke move. 20 seconds left in the first Chicago goal. A double tip on a point shot, tipped by Kirby Dock. Then the goal scorer, Alex Debrinkit. 4-1 Edmonton after one. In the second, Edmonton's Evan Bouchard puts it off the crossbar, and Chicago goalie Lincoln stops Edmonton's Warren Fogel in tight, and Yesse Pouli RV net side in a scoreless frame. In the third, Chicago's Kane hits the far side post off the rush. Chicago goal, 2-1-0. Philip Kurashev coming out of the box, gets it to Debrinket, who puts it short side glove. Three and a half minutes to go. Edmonton, shorthanded goal, dry sidle, breakaway, forehand, post and in, far side. Chicago goalie Lincoln and robs Zach Cassian at the top of the paint. 5-2 Edmonton win. Chicago goalie Lankinen looked like he hadn't played in 13 days between games against the high-octane Edmonton team, while Edmonton goalie Skinner was stellar. Edmonton stars were buzzing, and so were their special teams as Edmonton paced itself to a 4-0 lead that Chicago could not recover from. While McDavid's first goal is just McDavid doing McDavid things, Lankinen overcommitted so badly Barry's second goal was right in the center of the net, and he still couldn't positionally get back to stop it. And Chicago, on their power play, coughed up the puck in the defensive zone to allow Edmonton's third goal. The difference is the goaltending in a 17-14 Chicago shot and goal advantage, and Edmonton was up three goals after one. Edmonton finished the game 33-31 with an advantage in shots. Chicago did get forward Brandon Hankel back from injury. The decision to start Goy Lankinen still worked out for Chicago, as we will talk about Chicago having a better chance of winning in Vancouver as part of their back-to-back. Chicago, a 1-0 win in Vancouver Sunday. Early Vancouver power play in the first Chicago goalie, Marc-Andre Fleury stops Vancouver's Elias Pedersen from the circle and Tanner Pearson's rebound try. Having played just over two minutes' time on ice, Chicago defenseman Riley Stillman leaves the game with a leg injury and he was unable to return, and Chicago played with five defensemen for the rest of the game. Vancouver's Connor Garland, spinorama and backhander save by Chicago goalie Flurry. Chicago's Jake McCabe gets to the net front off of a give-and-go rush in a scoreless first. Vancouver's Brock Besser hits the far side post in the second, 
A Chicago defensive zone turnover forces Chicago goalie Fleury to stop Vancouver's Niles Hoaglander. Vancouver's Oliver ekman Larson jumps into the rush and hits the short side post. Chicago power play Jonathan Taves stopped by Vancouver goalie Thatcher Demko from the circle. Chicago goalie Fleury stops Vancouver's Bo Horvath in the high slot on the power play. Later, Vasily Podkolzin in the paint and an attempted short side tuck by Peterson with his glove on the ice in a scoreless second. 4-12 into the third, Chicago's Hagel scores a deflection short side on a point shot for the game's only goal net front. Vancouver goalie Demko makes a blocker save on Chicago's Dominique Kubalik. Vancouver's Pearson hits the crossbar off the rush. Chicago's Hagel goes to the net winning a race to the puck but he is stopped. Chicago goalie Fleury stops Vancouver's JT Miller twice on one-timers on a late Vancouver power play with less than two to go and secures a shutout six on four on Vancouver's point shot and then from the dot chances by Peterson as Chicago wins one to nothing. Chicago gets the two points that Winnipeg didn't get on the same back-to-back in Vancouver and Edmonton by playing their starting goalie Flurry in Vancouver who made 40 saves in the shutout his first with Chicago. While Chicago did not generate a lot of offense in 24 shots on goal and they gave up a lot that Flurry made saves on, they did have the ability on back-to-back nights to keep up with the Vancouver team's speed and Chicago was defensively responsible, or at least better than they were at Edmonton, and while the special teams were both 0-3, Vancouver had better chances on their man advantages. The last line of defense for Chicago Flurry was exceptional while out-dueling Vancouver goalie Demko. Flurry also got help from both posts and the crossbar, as Vancouver couldn't get one past him. Vancouver was a fresher team, but Fleury made it a one-shot game, and Chicago was able to get the one goal they needed. That's not something a year ago that would be a possibility for Chicago that with Fleury now provides for, and he did so in Vancouver. Chicago, 18 games played, 6-10-2, 14.7th in the Central, streak one win, goal differential minus 18. The coaches, goal choice to play the backup Lankin in an Edmonton in the least likely to win game versus starter Flurry in the Vancouver more likely to win game. Had Chicago get two points while Winnipeg by comparison just having the same back-to-back picked up one point. Chicago has a stop in Calgary and a tough Pacific Division team to finish out its Western Canadian road trip. While the Vancouver win was good, Chicago is going to have to beat some of the teams that sit well above them in the standings to simply get back into the mix. There has to be more than just great goaltending to beat top-tier playoff-bound teams. One area is the power play is missing Tyler Johnson to injury. It hasn't been as potent since he's been out. There's a lot of parts to Chicago's overall team game, additionally, that still need improving. Winnipeg, a 3-2 loss in Vancouver Friday. Winnipeg's Mark Scheifele's backhander stopped by Vancouver goalie Thatcher Demko. Vancouver's Elias Pettersson's one-timer on a power play stopped by Winnipeg goalie Eric Comrie. Back half of the first, Vancouver's Oliver ekman Larson's point wrister glove side opens the scoring. Winnipeg's Andrew Kopp's backhander in the slot stopped by Vancouver goalie Demko. Vancouver's fourth liner, Yuho Lamico runs over Winnipeg goalie Comrie going to the net and there's no penalty call. 1-0 Vancouver after one. Winnipeg's Evgeny Sveshnikov slot shot stop 
by a pad save in the second. Vancouver goal, point shot through traffic blocker side. Former Colorado defenseman Kyle Burrows, first NHL goal. A minute later, Winnipeg goal, Nick Ehlers stops up on the offensive zone entry, spins to the slot, and puts a wrister high glove. A Vancouver power play goal under three minutes later as Connor Garland wide open tees up a slap shot short side. Three minutes to go, Vancouver goalie Demko races out to clear the puck away from an incoming Winnipeg Ehlers and manages to prevent a breakaway chance. 3-1 Vancouver after two. 3.08 left in the third, Winnipeg goal. Net side Pierre-Luc Dubois has the puck go off his skate with Winnipeg playing six on five. Vancouver holds on to the 3-2 win. After taking three of four points in two games versus Pacific Division leading Edmonton, Winnipeg serves up an absolute stinker in Vancouver. Vancouver's losers of five and six of the last seven games playing, now unnoticeable in any Vancouver games I watched prior forward Lamico till he runs over Comrie, and that is the definition of goalie interference, but it doesn't get called, so you know nothing probably, not even a high stick is getting called on Vancouver. And that's important because at 60.3%, Vancouver is dead last on the penalty kill. While Vancouver goalie Demko faced 39 shots on goal compared to Comrie's 29, Winnipeg's quantity did not match the quality. Now, I didn't listen to Winnipeg coach Paul Maurice postgame. Actually, I've stopped listening to his pressers altogether, but my guess is he made mention to a tough game in Edmonton the night before and losing to special teams as the previous 0-for-13 Vancouver power play went 2-for-3 in this game. Yada yada. The first Vancouver power play goal is on a Blake Wheeler offensive zone minor penalty, probably because he's tired from playing too much in Edmonton. And that's how Pomo is wrong in his game assessment. The correct answer for the loss Winnipeg had to Vancouver is the bad line management by the head coach. Yes, especially the older players were a step back. Most were, but to elaborate. Winnipeg's time on ice versus Edmonton, Wheeler, 23 plus minutes. Sveshnikov under 13 minutes. Dominic Toninato under 6 minutes. Christian Veselainen under 4 minutes. Jansen Harkins and Adam Lowry under 15 and 12 minutes, respectively. Winnipeg's time on ice versus Vancouver. Wheeler, still 17-plus minutes. Sveshnikov, just over 14 minutes. Lowry, under 16 minutes. Harkins, under 14 minutes. Tondinato, just over 6 minutes. Veselainen, just over 4.5. Sveshnikov can play with Dubois and Connor, prime age players who should be able to play 20 minutes on back-to-back games, as should Shifley and Ehlers additionally. And while I don't hate the shortening of Winnipeg's bench versus Edmonton, it could have actually included not overplaying Wheeler while not playing Riley Nash, but there's still a few guys so low in minutes, as I've mentioned, that come playing Vancouver, I have full confidence in Sveshnikov playing 20 minutes instead of Wheeler, and finding a way minus Nash and the 11 forward 70 set allows you to do it to get Veselainen and Toninato more time on ice. So how many great coach adjustments were made with a tired group on back-to-back nights? None. And the results were no points. None in Vancouver. That's not on special teams, nor playing back-to-back. That Winnipeg has to do 10 more times still? That's simply bad coaching. 
Winnipeg, 17 games played, 9, 4, and 4, 22 points, second in the central streak, lost one, goal differential plus 9. So the expected two-game road trip should be a loss in Edmonton and a win in Vancouver, two points minimally, and Winnipeg got one point. That's a bad road trip for this group because it was under the expected points. It's to say, I would be okay with a Winnipeg loss to Edmonton. I'm not with a loss to Vancouver. And I'm not sure this team, while system-wise improved from a year ago, still isn't undercoached by Paul Maurice to its actual potential. It's to the point they have to win with their own coach making decisions that make it harder for the team to do so. At least I couldn't complain about Winnipeg's power play versus Vancouver because Winnipeg wasn't skating or playing their game to draw a penalty and other calls the refs weren't calling. Another coach decision would be to play the starter in the game you most expect to win. That would have had Comrie play in Edmonton and Hellebuck in Vancouver. And that's also a non-starter conversation with coach Paul Maurice. However, look at how it worked out for Chicago. Nashville, 6-3 loss in Montreal Saturday. Nashville's Ryan Johansson top of paint and rebound glove save by Montreal goalie Sam Montembeau. In net as Montreal has both goalies Carey Price and Jake Allen currently out to injury. Under three minutes in on Montreal's first shot and goal, forehand on the ice around the skating pad, blocker side swept in past Nashville goalie UC Saros in the paint for a Montreal goal to open the scoring. Nashville's Yakov Trenin net front tip is saved and Luke Cunning crashes the net, but he stopped. 11.28 left in the first, Nashville looked to score as Cunning puts it off his glove and directs it into the net. It's waved off immediately as no goal. Nashville defensive zone turnover forces Nashville goalie Saros pad save. 1-0 Montreal after one. Montreal goal on their first shot on goal of the second period. Former Yoke Christian Dvorak net side lifted off a defensive zone turnover created by Nashville goalie Saros, who plays the puck off the sideboards to give it to Montreal and create the odd man rush against that ends up with the puck in his net. Nashville offensive zone penalty to Matthew Olivier leads to a Montreal power play goal. Less than two and a half minutes later, a net front tic-tac-toe and tip. Nashville coach John Hines calls a timeout. Nashville's Cunnins backhander, net front Tip is stopped. Just a second under six minutes after the timeout, Montreal's Ryan Paling pots a pair of goals for Montreal off the cycle from the dot glove side roof, and he rips it on a zone entry as the players stay out on the same shift 37 seconds after. That ends Nashville goalie Saros Knight, five goals against, 14 saves. Nashville goalie David Riddick comes on in relief. Nashville's Johansson off the rush forces Montreal goalie Montembeau pad save. Nashville goalie Riddick makes a pad save on Montreal's Tyler Toffoli's breakaway. Nashville's Olivier and Montreal's Josh Anderson fight. And I give the nod to Anderson as he lands more punches for the decision. While the refs are announcing that, a line ball breaks out along the boards with Nashville's Mark Borowicki and Montreal's Dvorak. And Nashville's other players, Michael McCarron, Nick Cousins in his return to the lineup, and Dante Fabro all locked with some players from Montreal additionally. The first four that I've named involved, two from each team, get offsetting penalties. Montreal goalie Montembeau stops Nashville's Matthias Ekholm's blast 
It is 5-0 Montreal through two. In the third, a power play field hat trick from Matt Deshane in just under 10 minutes. That starts just under seven minutes in. The first off the rush, roof corner, blocker side power play goal, separated from his second by Montreal's Arturi Lekkonen's breakaway off the rush where he blows his stick up while taking the misfired chance. Deshane's second, a power play goal, point-blank slot, five-hole, and the third on a delayed penalty to Montreal, low circle, short side roof for the natural hat-trick and his team-leading 12th of the year. Montreal get an empty net goal in the 6-3 home win over Nashville. On Cunnan's disallowed goal directed in by his glove, I'm on the record saying these goals should count, but even if it had, it doesn't change Nashville's second-period meltdown for them to be able to win this game. Even if the score was 1-1, and that cunning goal had counted, not one nothing after 1, it still would have been 5-1, not 5 nothing after 2. And while Nashville got it to 5-3 after DeShane's natural hat-trick, that if Cunning's goal stood, would have made the score 5-4, not 5-3 as it was, Nashville still has to pull the goalie, and then they would still need a goal to tie it, and they do get scored on an empty net, making it 6-4 to four if Cunnan's goal stood, but rather 6-3 to three because it didn't, which is Montreal's win as it was a final. It's the first time watching Montreal since last year's playoff run for me, as it's the first time they played a Central Division team, making it the only time I would have watched them. So that's limiting the perspective of how better they played comparative to their well-documented awful start. Montreal got goaltending from an unlikely source, and Nashville goalie Saros did create the turnover for Montreal's second goal, so he is responsible for that. In fact, he didn't match the 0-3-1 record, Montembeau, three goals against, 33 saves, night. We have an even a memory of what Nashville looks like without stellar goaltending for so long, but this would be what it sadly does look like. Nashville had defenseman Alex Carrier back in the lineup, never said unpopular opinion. I didn't miss Nick Cousins in the Nashville lineup. In fact, with bottom pair Borowicki and Matt Benning, and forwards McCarron Olivier with Cousins. It represents an entire line that won't be putting up points while playing minutes. Against a Montreal team with young forwards with speed, I would have liked forward Thomas Novak's speed and skill competitively in for any of those three forwards who did play. My big disappointment was Montreal defenseman Shea Weber, who's been out all year, didn't get to face his former team in this one. Nashville, 17 games played, 9-7 and 1-19 points. Fourth in the central, streak, two losses, goal differential, minus one. The trap game in Montreal response after a dud in Toronto meant the only good part of Nashville's Eastern Canadian road trip was the Ottawa game being cancelled. This is comparatively disappointing to Winnipeg's losing to Vancouver. However, more so because there wasn't a back-to-back game excuse built in available. Nashville starting on time, but it's a reminder how dependent Nashville is on goalie Saros. I will say having forward Philip Forsberg would be great right now as Deshane, Cunning, and Granlin are having to carry the ball offensively. Johansson had looks, but also... As I have said time and time again, Tenor Janot's production is tied to Yakov Trenin, and I'm not sure why they are playing on separate lines of late, and thus 
Janot's gone quiet. Those two playing with Johansson would be interesting to see. We haven't seen it. Also, Ellie Tovalin, as talented as he is, needs to be relocated like Rem Pitlick did to find success. It's a shame, but his game doesn't suit Coach John Hines' system. Up next, if you got the sense, I'm all in all podcasting with a chip on my shoulder through this edition of the podcast. Let's say across the board, say for Arizona doing better than my no expectations. Not quite sure I was overly impressed by any of the team showings over the weekends across the focus division teams, and that's why it is critical across the board. I expected better from, well, all the division teams, even the two that played each other, in fact. Tonight's games, some big Pacific Division versus Central Division games, Vegas and St. Louis, and Anaheim and Nashville, as well. Ottawa returns from the NHL-mandated COVID pause to play in Colorado, and Pittsburgh is in Winnipeg. Tuesday, Edmonton is in Dallas, while Chicago is in Calgary. Let's see more Central Division wins across the board this week. $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. How would you like to come home to a bartender who will fix you any cocktail you want? I'll have an old-fashioned. I'll have a margarita. Now you can with the Bartesian Home Cocktail Maker. Bartesian is a sleek machine the size of a coffee maker that makes premium cocktails at the touch of a button. Choose from over 50 different cocktails, from classics to the most exotic premium cocktails served in the best bars today. You'll always get freshly mixed, perfectly balanced cocktails with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. And now get Bartesian's best Black Friday deal ever at bartesian.com holiday. Entertaining? The Bartesian is ideal for parties. No need to stock all kinds of individual mixers for complicated recipes. Every guest gets the cocktail of their choice in seconds. The Bartesian makes a wonderful gift for anyone who loves a fine premium cocktail. Now get Bartesian's best Black Friday deal ever. It's available right now, only at bartesian.com slash holiday. That's B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N dot com slash holiday for Bartesian's best deal ever. Only at bartesian.com slash holiday.